I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Rule the World, the ultimate power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Hello and welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. My name is Paul Furlong, Creative Director at Opus Media, and today's guest is David Bogey, who is a storytelling professor, um, researcher and consultant. He describes himself as an anti-narrativist, uh, in that he looks at what is before in advance of narrative and story. David's written 22 books, 145 articles, and many in top-tier journals. He's developed anti-narrative since 2001. He's currently working on how anti-narrative generative mechanisms involve forecaring. He runs an annual quantum storytelling conference in New Mexico every December, and many of his books can be found on Amazon. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Dr. David Bojay. Well, hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you for talking to us today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So can we start with you telling me a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do? Well, I'm a professor at New Mexico State University. Um, This last year I earned the status of regents professor. That's the highest accolade they give. So I'm really happy after 20 years to, to get that. And my day-to-day life is, uh, you know, writing. I write every morning. And then teaching doctoral students, undergraduates, sometimes master's students. My love of story comes from my dad, who could spin a good yarn. <laughs> and uh, I never knew quite if he was telling the truth or not. But whenever I tried to 
uh, investigate, usually it was true. So. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, you define storytelling as the interplay of dominant narratives, epistemic or empiric, with ontological webs of lower level living stories that provide sense-making currency for stakeholders. Do you think you might be able to put that into uh, some language that people like me might be able to understand? Yes. Uh, the storytelling is the big picture. It's the big area. You know, inside storytelling are particular entities we call narratives. And every narrative usually has a counter-narrative. So those are those are dominant. Then we have the stories that we live by, you know, the daily life stories that are unfolding that don't yet have an end. And we may not even figure out the beginning. We're just in the middle of living them. So I call those living stories. And then there's an entity that I started identifying and studying in 2001. I call anti-narrative, A-N-T-E, narrative. Anti stands for antecedent. And I believe that these entities are super important because they come in advance of and before both narrative and story. They're, they're these generative mechanisms that we've been studying. You can't have a narrative or story without them, but you you have these generative mechanisms, these anti-narratives, independent. They exist independently of narrative and story. You know, you know they're kind of like building blocks. Is, uh, is that a simple way to say it? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good way to say. It. Could you give Could you give us uh, maybe an example of of an anti-narrative and how that kind of becomes sure. with within the story? Sure. Uh, you know. Uh, very straightforward example is uh, mother and dad with their anticipated newborn. They're going to do a lot of things in advance to prepare. It's called for caring. You know, they have a conscience about them and they know the baby's coming. So they're going to watch the woman's diet. They should watch the man's diet too, but they watch the woman's diet. They, they make sure all the electrical outlets are covered. They move all the chemicals up out of reach for when the baby starts to crawl. They uh, you make sure the the rungs in the crib are not too far apart where the head could get through. And, you know, anything that could potentially harm, they're going to take care of in advance. And that's what I call anticipation. And it's in advance. Uh, the narrative of the baby is forming, the identity is forming, but all this, all this anti-narrative occurs first. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So the anti-narrative is the preparation. The living story is kind of the present in the moment. Right. And what's the grand narrative? Well, they're, they're looking backwards on life. You know, they're looking at your experience. You have an experience of sense-making, right? So the experience happened. And then you look back on all these experiences and you say, oh, this is what the key events are. And I put that into a narrative. There it is. You know? 
that's that's my life. That's my organization. That's the way it is. But what it doesn't do is deal with the future that's arriving and the care of that future. So because you can choose many different paths, many different potentialities of the future. So you could you could care for that baby to go back for that example by painting your room blue or painting it pink, uh, getting an ultrasound to figure out what color it should be. <laughs> you know, you can, you know, start planning uh, your maternity leave, all kinds of things in advance. And you're anticipating the future, you know, and you're actually designing a, a potentiality, bring it into actual being, you know. So if you're a good parent, you're bringing in good potentiality. If you're a neglectful parent, you know, accidents, circumstance, whatever, you're leaving it to chance. Um, that's my answer. So the anti-narrative is a bit like making a bet, is that right? Yeah, it's a bet on the future, but it's an informed, intelligent bet. Um, so it's... You know, Charles Saunders Peirce calls it an abduction, you know, a, a wild-ass intelligent guess, you know. So you're just not doing things in random. You're sort of saying, well, I could bring this into happening. I could bring this other alternative into happening, but it's going to be a little harder. But I really want that. So I'm going to work harder to make it happen. So it's a bet done intelligently. And you talk in, in your research about four models of anti-narratives, for having, for structuring, for conceiving, and for care. Could yeah. you give us definitions of, of those four elements? Sure, no problem. Uh, for having is happening before narrative and story. Okay, so it's the, called the preparation. Now, there's other aspects of for caring so you want to for structure you want to set up the right structures that are going to enable things to happen so that might be covering those electrical outlets uh, might be coming up with a different routine in your life so you're structuring your life a little differently to ensure good things happen good health so the concepts aren't particularly independent they just cover different dimensions then you have four conception. You need concepts to understand what's happening. So you, you come up with a language about the future. So instead of looking backwards, we look forward. Instead of looking at stuck in the past, we're looking at which futures are arriving and what, which ones can I enable. Now that entails those bets, what's called foretelling or foresight. So I get a glimpse of a possible future and another possible future and another possible future and I exercise choice. And you can help ex organizations exercise choice instead of being in a TINA narrative that's like there is no alternative to budget cut, downsizing, whatever. You can start to anticipate different alternatives to that stuck narrative and say, okay, I'm going to bring this 
this other group of alternatives into being and really nurture them and really support and develop them. So it's a a different orientation. So those four concepts, you know, fall under uh, four caring. So you have four having, four conceiving, four structure, four sight, and they all kind of fit within four caring, you know, which I said at the outset, it's a matter of conscience. So that's how you go about structuring your anti-narrative? Yes, sir. Is there any way that you can structure the living story? Or is that just what's happening to you as you're there? Yeah. The, the living story, as well as the narrative, you can uh, try to connect up with an anti-narrative understanding. So in, in narrative, it's a bit easier to understand because you can say, well, I've been looking backwards and all the past income statements and balance sheets and people's complaints and people's suggestions and here's a pattern but now i want to look forward and what do i want to bring into being maybe it's not that pattern at all maybe it's some other particular pattern so you can you can connect them together with a living story web you tell in one living story and then i got to tell you another one and another one and another one's unfolding because i'm entangled is so many relationships, you know, that uh, each of them has their own living story that's unfolding. So it's kind of a web work that I'm caught in. Now you can you can start breaking connections and developing particular connections more forcefully, more resolutely, and then that'll connect your anti-narrative process for caring. For that web, or you can just go and just live each day as you can without much reflection on it, you know. So that web is so the living story, the web is between all of the stories that are taking place and happening to you all at the same time. Correct, correct. And some of them have uh, happened before they're coming about. But you're in the present, so you're, you're saying, okay, I've got to clean the horse stalls today, which I did already, by the way. <laughs> and, and my wife, she had to go to her early class, so I had to do that, you know, more completely than I usually do when we're together. So, it, you know, there's this whole web of relationships I'm in that, impact each particular living story you can't know a person by one living story you know it's going to take hundreds of them and you talk about the the play tamara yes sir. Um, so that's uh that's a play um that really quite easily demonstrates how living stories work could you expand and just explain how tamara oh, works yeah tamara was a play that was in Los Angeles was the longest running play they ever had. And when I went to it, you go in an actual mansion that has a basement, a main floor, those nice stairways that lead up to the bedrooms, you know, a library, a kitchen area, bathrooms, everything. And the 
audience comes in and you get these passports that say, oh, you're, it's 1927. Guess what? You're going into the Tamara mansion and you're to follow whatever actors you choose. You're not going to sit down as an audience. You're going to split off and follow the action. So it's like a real organization. It, you know, if you think of a real organization, you're on one floor or in one building or one office, then a whole bunch of other people are in some other office, some other building. And then you know what's happening in part in the room you're in or the hallway. And then all these other people know in part what's happening in their hallway or room. And then a few hours will go by or a few minutes and then you, you jet off to go to some other room where a bunch of people arrive from different rooms. So that's why you only know in part what's going on because they, they each have their own history of what's happened that day or before. And you're in the room together. You're hearing the same story, the same narrative. And guess what? You all have a lot of different interpretations in that same room because you came from a different room, you know, and you know a meaning in that story particular to the path that followed from that room, other rooms. And then somebody else, Sue, next to you, she came from a different path and she knows a different meaning. And unless you sit down and share it together, uh, you're not really unpacking the total meaning of the event in that room, right? So, you know, you have people in the boardroom deciding things, and you got people on the shop floor doing and deciding things. you got customers ordering and deciding things. And somehow all of this storytelling event throughout tomorrow has to come out and to some sort of intelligent adaptive way of coordinating all of it. You know, it's self-managing and it's self-coordinating. I mean, sometimes you do sit down and everybody says, hey, look, this is what I meant by this. And you're, you're coming out with a whole different meaning that I didn't, I didn't intend. And we need to sort it out. Well, that, that kind of hard work doesn't occur often enough. So mostly you're just in this morass of uh, kind of not really able to make tight sense of what's going on. You know, you, you get a partial sense, but you don't have a complete understanding. It's it's uh, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You're living in this morass of uncertainty and you pin some of it down, but not all of it. So tomorrow is just exactly the way organizations operate in their storytelling. So bringing this all together into how this operates within an organization, how, how does an organization bring all of this together? Oh, well, you know, simple ways, and then we can get more complex, but simple ways. A manager hears one side of a story, has got to know that they need to investigate all the other sides of the story. So somebody reports, oh, 
Boji let his class out, you know, he better be reprimanded. Well, you know, I'm going to have a, my side of the story is I made individual appointments with each one so I could work with them separately, you know, so I didn't have class together. So I have my side of the story. If a manager just operates on the first side of the story they hear, which believe me, I've encountered that many times, they're not going to make good judgments, you know, and it's going to lead to trouble. It's going to lead to escalating conflict instead of managing it. And you have more complexity because if you look at what an organization does, they try to build these coherent narratives to explain to investors and customers stakeholders what what they're doing why they're doing it what their mission is etc they try to make sense of their performance and you need that and at the same time everybody's in the middle of all their living story work and all their relationships and they haven't got that narrative coherence it doesn't do just narrative coherence doesn't do justice to the web work that they're in and and then running around in there are these potential anti-narrative generative mechanisms that allow interpretation to happen and can link up with complexity. Every open system has uh, loosely coupled causes and effects. Right. It's not like a lab experiment where you're in a closed system and you're testing how does this cause relate to this effect? And you're going like, I'm controlling it by not having anything else happening at the same time. But in a real organization, complex system, you have multiple lines of interaction happen at the same time. So you can't control, say, OK, this cause is going to have this effect. No, it could have 10 different effects and be part of 10 different causes, some of which link up and most of which don't behave the way you predict. That's that uncertainty. Because um, we live in waves, not, not uh, particles bumping into each other, you know? So it's a different notion of cause-effect, if that makes sense. You know, our organizations have very complex patterns. We try to simplify them best we can, but there's always an excess of complexity. So what can an organization do to bring together the distance between the stories that they're telling and the, the living stories that the people within the organization are living within? Oh, uh, one of my... Uh, MBA students when I t was a prof at UCLA, Stu Leonard Jr. And he has a Stu Leonard organization back east. Uh, kind of a Disneyland of dairy stores, you know, with all kinds of mechanical chickens and mechanical cows. And you kind of weave your way through a bunch of exhibits when you're... Well, every morning they have a storytelling session and they do two things. They'll pull out all the comment cards they got from customers and want 
different kind of packaging, a different kind of soup mix, a different kind of, oh, um, they want a different stuffing in their jalapenos, you know? And so they take those and they actually implement just about every one of them. So that means they're daily changing what they're presenting to customers. And a lot of times they'll present the old package, you know, like uh, eight ounces of soup and somebody else wants 16 ounces. So they'll present both and they'll actually expand uh, the sales per square foot that way. Uh, and the second thing they do is they acknowledge uh, who in their employees, their customer people, their people in the warehouse, people in the trucking, people running the cashiers, uh, what they are doing that really is effective. And they go out and just acknowledge that to those people, you know, that, that creates, um, I believe that creates these anti-narrative generative mechanisms for dealing with complexity more intelligently. So instead of, you know, most people, they throw a suggestion in, they know nobody's going to look at it. Pretty soon they don't bother throwing any in because everybody's saying, oh, I know, I know what, soup we should offer. I know how to package the fish. I know exactly what's needed. So I'm not going to listen to any of these silly customers. And then they, they find out that they're, somebody else is listening down the street and they start losing market share. That would be a concrete example. So by the feedback mechanism, they're able to intelligently structure their anti-narratives to move the company forward. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a kind of caring, uh, a very comprehensive kind of caring uh, about all the storytelling that's going on so that they're improving the relationship between what they, what they're saying narratively and then on the ground, bottom up intelligence that they're actually processing so they can start to bring their narratives into alignment with what the caring is that they want to bring about and what the living stories are, some of which are disasters and some of which are successes. And they're bringing all that into uh, better alignment. And the stories that people tend to tell within the organizations, you say that there are nine kind of basic stories as opposed to what is generally considered to be the seven basic plot points. So what, what are the nine stories oh. that you talk about? Well, the, you know, all the credit goes to Mikhail Bakhtin and I'm not sure I can fulfill a test and recall all nine. <laughs> Basically there's, there's adventure types. Uh, you know, you have, a more romantic, idealized adventure, you know, with not a lot of particulars and uh, idealized characters. So you have kind of the heroic CEO, the Horatio Al Alger myth of rags to riches, and 
you know, the, the Walt Disney who's going to make sure all the creativity happens. You know, so you have those kind and you have a chivalry uh, adventure kind of implotment. You see where you're, you know, like McDonald's is clean and has service and supposedly quality, although I'm not recommending fast food to anybody. So you have these chivalric ideals and you're living out some kind of chivalric code. So that's a bit different than, than uh, a romantic adventure. Then you have uh, biographical adventures, so a particular biography of uh, the General Douglas MacArthur, or, uh, some of these presidential candidates that were vying for election recently. So they uh, they each have their biographical narrative. Uh, inside those biographical narratives, there's people that know what really goes on with, say, Clinton and Trump. So inside either camp, there are people uh, doing WikiLeaks on what Clinton email said or didn't say and what Trump's holdings are or are not in his tax structures. Things like that are released. So the biography ends up being having its counter narratives by people that are, you know, chauffeurs and accountants and butlers and I don't know, it's just people working in a campaign that have loose lips. So you have a series of these adventure narratives. And there's um, uh, several, the others kind of fall more in the category of uh, particular kinds of folkloric plots. Um, so the most simple one, I think, is the rogue clown fool. So, you know, the rogue character uh, kind of steals or is breaking the rules, is coloring outside the box. The, the fool can't understand technology, for example, grimace. Is, is a perfect character for that. So they they uh, bumble around technology and make us understand kind of in a comical way the limits of people's awareness of technology. So they're the people that put their drink cups in the, the CD disc in their computer or something, you know, or can't figure out why the machine's not working and they didn't push the on button. You know, and then you have the clown, which historically was not the clown you see in Barnum and Bailey Circus. It's not that kind of clown. It, this was a clown that Renaissance spoke back to the religious authorities, spoke back to the state, king and queen, princes, and put on uh, kind of theater of social change back in the day, saying, you know, this, these 
acts by the state are oppressive and you need to see what they look like so you can go back and make a more intelligent leadership choice so that that rogue clown fool the masks of the rogue clown fool are an important um, type of plot. You know, Bakhtin was very concerned that with um, what was happening with Einstein, relativity theory, that we needed a lot more robust uh, list of kinds of plots of different comprehensions of time and different comprehensions of space. So, so for example, he had a folkloric plot about generative, how the soil and life in a community is generative. And you're, when you're in the womb of the community, uh, ideas and life is forming and you have a sense of place where the, in Liverpool, you grew up there, I hope. You know the streets, you know the right highways to take to get to work, you know places to eat that are friendly, places that overcharge for their beer. You know, you know how the lay of the land. And that kind of uh, grounded understanding of how things are generating in, in place in the time of Liverpool that's a particular, um, what he calls chronotope, meaning uh, chronology and in space-time. You know, and he was just, Bakhtin was just trying to work out the implications of relativity. And now our generation is trying to work out uh, quantum storytelling, you know space-time, but also the materiality. Your, your romantic adventures, your chivalric adventures, even many of your biographical adventures don't pay a lot of attention to uh, the mattering, the materiality that's in play. So those are some of the main uh, chronotopes. I can go into all nine, but that might be a little bit, you know, you're viewers might turn off <laughs> <laughs> i think maybe we need to do that um at another time where we can go into uh, into a bit more detail I, I know for sure i would love to hear more about each of them um so to, to pull this together then david uh, for any managers listening if you give them one piece of advice based on the research that you've done into storytelling and everything that we've discussed today um what what advice would you give them Probably the mailman's here. <laughs> okay. My advice would be to pay attention to all of the unfolding living stories and not get caught up in branding a, a narrative. Because when you brand something, it's kind of permanent. You know, you've invested millions of dollars in a brand and you branded it. That's all well and good. But then it's really hard to change the brand once you're out there. But you can, you can understand um, all the unfolding living stories and you can pay more attention to these anti-narrative generative mechanisms and how, how you can tap in to 
different kinds of futures. So instead of narratives just being about the past, play with the future. Play your bets on different kinds of possibilities and bring them into being. So rather than fixating on getting stuck in one one brand. That would be my advice. Excellent advice. Uh, thank you for that. Um, we have a couple of quick fire questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, so uh, when you hear the word story or storytelling, who comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Um, I guess Stu Leonard Jr., you know, the Stu Leonard organization for uh, storytelling. And there's a guy that ran a steel company, uh, David Armstrong. And he's put out some uh, really nice books on uh, where he's he's called one of them is called the Chief Storytelling Officer, and he actually collects all the positive stories about his employees and managers and customers, and puts them out in books and awards and things like that. So although he's not a researcher, he's He's a lot more systematic about it than many researchers are, you know. So uh, in terms of practice people, those would be practice people. If you want um, scholars, well, certainly uh, Barbara Sanowska comes to mind for narrative and uh, Giannis Gabriel for uh, story. And uh, finally then, David, where can we find out more about you? Uh, can we find you online? Where can we read your oh, books, yeah. your articles? Yeah, davidboji.com. Are you on Twitter? Are you uh, anywhere yeah, else we might find you? Twitter. Uh, if you go to davidboji.com, I think you can find Facebook and Twitter there. Um, so... And if you go davidboji.com slash quantum, you can get to the annual quantum storytelling conference that happens here in Las Cruces, New Mexico, every December. Excellent. And your books are available on Amazon? Yes, they are. There's about 22 of them, and i got a couple more I'm bringing out in January. Excellent. We shall look forward to reading them as well. Yeah, thank you. Glad somebody's reading them. <laughs> Well, David, thank you. Uh, thanks for your time today. It's been a, a real pleasure talking to you. Hey, thank you. And thanks for the wonderful preparation. You demonstrate the anti-narrative capability of care. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, hopefully we can do this again soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All the World. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you, and see you next time. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.